0: So I want to ask a question today. I'm curious how many backseat drivers we have in here. Oh. Oh, I already already see I'm stirring some things up. There's some pointing going on over in this direction. Um, Maybe a more interesting question is, how many backseat drivers uh, do you have in your family? Uh, Backseat drivers are uh, an interesting dynamic that we've probably all experienced. Um, Speaking for myself, I have both been a backseat driver and also been super annoyed by backseat drivers. You know, there's a really fine line between being helpful um, and... And, and being unhelpful to the driver. I know I, for one, am directionally challenged. And so I often need someone to tell me where to turn and where to go. Um, but sometimes that's uh, that's not super, super helpful or appreciated. Um, we have a daughter who's 13, so in a couple years, she's going to be learning how to drive. And so I have a feeling this whole idea of backseat driving is going to be like a whole new thing for, for us as we, as we learn to navigate that. But one of the things that um, I enjoy about driving is that I'm in control. I'm in control of where we go and how we get there. And I would venture to say that most of us like to be in control of where we're going and how we're getting there. As I was thinking about this this morning, I was thinking back uh, to my grandmother. She passed last year, but I have such fond memories of spending time with Grandma Jackie. And um, I remember specifically when she still lived in Dallas, so this must have been like 20 years ago. She still lived in Dallas, and I'd gone to visit her, and we were driving around, and Grandma loved to drive, and she loved to drive fast, and uh, she didn't enjoy stopping at stoplights. And so often, uh, she knew all the back roads, and so she could get there a different way. Like, oh, we're stopped here. We're going to do a little detour, and she didn't get lost, really. Like, she knew her way around, especially Dallas, because she lived there Um so long and uh and so she had a plan for how where she was going and how she was gonna get there and, and there really was no use in telling her um to go a different way. Grandma also loved country music and so she would have the country music station just blaring as we were driving and I remember one day specifically um Carrie Underwood uh, her song Jesus Take the Wheel came on and and grandma who loved to drive and loved to be in control just belted that song yes Jesus take the wheel and so today we're going to look at, continue our series in John, and we're going to look at a conversation between John the Baptist and his disciples, and, and it reminds me of this idea of, of backseat driving, and are we willing to give up control and allow God to, to drive us to take the wheel like Grandma loved to sing. So we're going to be looking today at John chapter 3. We've been in this series for a few weeks now, and, uh, as we've talked about in the past, uh, John, the author of the Gospel of John, his purpose for writing this book was to, uh, build out a case, um, for P- his readers to know that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus, and, and by believing in Jesus, people can have life eternal life. And so this story is part of, of, uh, of that purpose, and we will see that by the end. So we're in John chapter 3, uh, verse 22 today. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near, uh, near Salem, because there was plenty of water. And people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So, John the Baptist has been preaching, he's been preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah, he's drawn a lot of crowds, a lot of people have come to him, a lot of people have been baptized, uh, this this baptism for repentance, and his, his disciples, his followers, John the Baptist's followers, are noticing that people are going over, more people are going over to Jesus, and where Jesus is preaching, and so... And so they come to they come to John the Baptist, and they're saying, "Everyone is going over there. Everyone." Now, if you're a parent of a preteen or teenager, or if you've been around um, teenagers, you, you've heard this phrase: "Everyone has." such and such, or everyone is doing this. Mom and Dad, I need, I need this. It, it wasn't so much that everyone was going over to Jesus. It was that they were resenting the fact that John the Baptist crowds were, were diminishing and uh, Jesus was drawing more crowds, and more people were being baptized by Jesus' disciples than John the Baptist's disciples. They were upset that Jesus was rising in prominence and, and John the Baptist was losing popularity. You maybe you've had this experience, it's kind of a silly example, but um. A lot of people go to the movies and you really enjoy, some of us really enjoy the previews because, you know, like I want to see all the things that are coming up. And it, it, it would be similar to someone going to the movies and being upset that the previews have ended and the movie has begun. <laughs> it's like, well, isn't isn't that the point? Like to go see the movie, to go see the main act and so, the John the Baptist disciples present this as a problem to John the Baptist. Hey, people are paying more attention to Jesus, and the unstated question here is, what are we going to do about this? Like, this is a problem, and it needs to be solved. So here's John's response to his disciples. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what was given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. He must become greater and I must become Less. So as John responds to his disciples, his his first statements kind of sounds like a proverb, like a truth that was was said and known, recited at that time. Um, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. And this this idea that everything we have is given to us by God, and we are not God, so we're just receiving from God. And John says, You've heard me say, and I'm going to say it again, I'm not. The, the main act here. I'm not the Messiah. Um, but John knew what he was sent to do. He says, I am sent by God. John was sent by God as a herald, as a witness, as a voice calling in the wilderness to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the chosen one. And John the Baptist gives this little illustration, a little mini, mini parable in his um, in his reply, about a friend who attends the groom um, during his his wedding, and it 's a completely different culture, and so the cultural practices were different. But I think we we can understand his meaning here, even if we just think about the the role of the best man at, at, at a wedding today. The, the best man isn't the star. The best man, it's not about him that day. The best man's purpose is to be there for his friend, the groom, and make sure the groom shines. And, and so it is with the maid of honor who's attending the bride, making sure that the bride shines and has a great day. And so John tells this little story, and he says, I'm finding great joy in doing my job. Like, I'm, I'm like the friend, My job is to point people to Jesus. My job is to draw attention to the coming Messiah. And so whereas the disciples of John were upset and and disappointed and begrudging the fact that their crowds were diminishing— that was not John the Baptist's perspective at all. He re- was rejoicing that God's will was being accomplished, that the Messiah had had finally come and was here. And then his climactic statement at the end, um, Jesus must become greater, and I must become less. And this was said with with um Said in joy, said in excitement. This wasn't said in a begrudging way, but rather in genuine humility that John was so excited and happy that Jesus had come. And Jesus is greater. And now it was time for Jesus to take the lead and to be in the spotlight. The last paragraph that we'll look at today is um, the author's of the gospel of John, so not John the Baptist, but John who wrote this gospel, the, the author's reflections and conclusions to this conversation. And so we'll read one more paragraph as, as we continue in verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all, and the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from above, uh, from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever re- rejects the son will not see life for god's wrath remains on them so this in this conclusion the authors really in my opinion answering the question why is it that jesus must be greater why, why is Jesus greater? In John's statement, Jesus must become greater and I must become less. And and he answers this by contrasting two very different people, taking Jesus, the one from above, uh, fully divine as well as fully human, with John the Baptist, who's from the earth, who's only human. And so of Jesus, he says, Jesus is, is from above. Jesus is divine and therefore above all. And Jesus testifies to what he has seen and heard. And this is of the divine, that Jesus can speak to that. Though many do not accept his testimony, those who are accepting his testimony are accepting the very words of God or hearing the very words of God. John also describes how God has given Jesus the spirit without limit. And that's a a really interesting phrase. And placed everything in his hands. In John, throughout the gospel, we'll see, um, describe the, the Trinitarian relationship. And there's a theme in John where John continually points to the unity of the Father and the Son. In in John 1, we are we already read how the word was with God and the word was God. And then in here we see the Spirit given without limit. That when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit comes down and remains on him. In the Old Testament, um the Spirit often came came um onto people for a specific task. So like the Spirit empowered specific tasks, but that's not what we see here. The Spirit was within Jesus, and I love it because the story continues, and Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to us, this this constant presence of God within the church. So John here is, is contrasting Jesus, the one who is from above, to John the Baptist, the one um, from the earth. And he says John the Baptist is from the earth and therefore speaks as one from the earth. He can speak to what he knows, which is not from above, but from the earth. And that John the Baptist was given a job by God to, to witness to the coming of the Messiah. And I love how cognizant John the Baptist is throughout the story of his role in the job that God has given him, and his human limitations. He, he was never pretending to be the Savior, to be the Messiah. And so in contrasting John the Baptist to Jesus, uh, the author clarifies the identity of both John and Jesus. And this is in previous chapters and in this chapters. John is described as the witness, and Jesus is described as the light of the world, the the Lamb of God. John is described as the voice preparing the way in the wilderness, and Jesus is described as the word that became flesh. John is described as baptizing with water, and Jesus as baptizing with the Spirit. John describes himself as the friend of the groom, and Jesus is the groom. John is the one pointing to the Messiah, the Savior who would come, and Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior who has come. And then verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now we can be pretty easily distracted by the phrase "God's wrath." <laughs> that's that's a challenging one for us, and often I don't like that word. Often in English, the the idea of wrath is is one of uncontrollable rage, you know, irrational rage that takes over a person, and that is not what that means here um, in the text God's wrath is is contrasted with eternal life and so it's the opposite of sharing in God's life it's the alienation from God's life so the main point here I don't want us to miss is that the holy and loving God offers eternal life to all who believe in Jesus and as we read last, Last week, the, the motivation behind that is this love, this agape love for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The purpose of the Messiah was to offer life, to save the world, to enable people to experience the abundance of living life with God in, in God's love. So today is, as, as we, as we look at the Gospel of John, the overarching invitation remains the same and it will remain the same for, for the whole Gospel. And that is to believe in and to follow Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God and to live into that abundant eternal life that is found in Jesus. And that invitation requires a continual response. From us, a continual choice from us to to walk daily with God. I also today want to extend to us an additional um, invitation, a more specific invitation from from this text that we looked at, that's reflected in John the Baptist's statement in in verse thirty, where John the Baptist says, "Jesus must become greater, and I must become less." I wonder what it would look like um, in my life, in your life, and in, in all our lives if we really took the same attitude and the same posture towards God, if this was our perspective. like What would it look like if God was at the very center of everything that we did and said? That was the, the focus. What would it look like? In our lives, how would it change our lives if the, if God's will and God's purposes superseded our will and our purposes for ourselves? What would it look like? How would it change our lives if, if God's mission of restoration and healing and reconciliation became our top top priority? and how we interacted with our family, and how we interacted at work, and how we interacted within our, our community. It's a really counterintuitive message. Um, we hear s- such a different message today in, in the world. So many of the things that we hear uh, revolve around you need to Protect yourself and, and get as much power as you can, and and hold on to it, and create for yourself your own future. Make your own decisions. Stay in control. Use your power for for self uh, benefit and self preservation. Don't let anyone anyone tell you what to do, because without that power, then. You're gonna be othered, you're gonna be considered less than, or you're gonna be taken advantage of or ignored. And, and sadly, we see that happening in our society. We see that happening in our community. And yet, the kingdom of God is so very different from that. Oh, series tell me matches for the kingdom of God. I don't know what the matches are. Um, I don't think there's a match for the kingdom of God, I think it's unique. Um, so I'm gonna have to have a talk with Siri. I love when that happens. Where was I? <laughs> the kingdom of God is so very different um, than what we see around us. God who's who, who is the definition of love and, and a very specific type of love, this agape love that is characterized by by its self-giving nature, a love that desires for the wholeness and healing of the other person. Um, a love that is not self-centered, but others centered. And we see this love in Jesus. It is in this agape love that, that God sent Jesus to show us the way, show us how to walk in this type of love and, and sent Jesus to take on the effects and the consequences of sin and death on, on himself. And, and he did that on the cross and rose again and now offers a new way of living, a new life, an abundant eternal life with God. So it is to this God it is to, to Jesus, this Jesus that we are invited to say, you must become greater and I must become less. Because like, like John's humility, um, our humility and our surrender to Jesus doesn't come from humiliation or from force or from oppression, but rather it's an invitation to, to realize, to acknowledge that Jesus is indeed greater. And Jesus is indeed God, and Jesus is indeed divine love. And we are invited to know Jesus and to participate in the amazing work, in the good work that God is doing in our world, in our lives, and in the world around us. But in Jesus, there is an abundant life and an unconditional love that exists nowhere else. So I might not want to surrender to someone else, but I can surrender to Jesus because of who Jesus is, because of what kind of love this is. And so as, as, as we come into the kingdom of God, as we're invited in, then we learn what it looks like to surrender our power and our will and our control and yield our desires to God. And in response, God envelops us in this agape love, in this divine unending grace, in the Holy Spirit fills us and begins this this long work of transformation that we might learn to to re- To experience and to live into this agape love and to reflect that love out into our world. That we would experience wholeness and healing in Jesus' love while at the same time participating in the mission of bringing that wholeness and healing um, into the communities that God is doing, you know, through Jesus and what Jesus has done. So friends, we're invited to acknowledge today, that Jesus is greater than all things, than all people, greater than we are. (laughs) Jesus is greater, and we're invited to yield ourselves, to surrender ourselves to God's love and purpose and authority in our lives. We're invited to just hand that over to God, and in return, God envelops us in his love and we are, we get to experience this abundant eternal life that is characterized by God's endless self-giving love and wholeness and healing. And so I ask myself and I, and I ask you to reflect as well. What areas in, in our lives are we still holding on to really tightly? What are areas that God may be inviting me and you to release today, to surrender to his love, to his purpose, to his authority, knowing that God is good and that God is love, and God will work for the healing and restoration of both of us and all people. What might God be inviting you to surrender today? As we think about that, I want to invite us into a time of communion. In communion, we remember Jesus' death on the cross as the ultimate act of agape love. I'm going to invite the band to back up to, to play a song for us in just a minute. But as we receive communion... We remember Jesus' body broken, and that's characterized by the gluten-free cracker <laughs> that we have. His his body broken on the cross and the juice represents his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins and just taking all that, the consequence and effect of, of evil on himself so that God may offer eternal life. And so we're invited to remember um, through, through t- receiving communion. And all are invited. It's completely optional. Um, but I, I want us to think about this as an, uh, both an act of remembrance and acknowledgement that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God who died for the sin of humanity. And also as an act of surrender. Use this time today as an act of surrender to Jesus, that we would collectively and individually say to Jesus, we believe and we will follow you and, and we will surrender to your leading and walk in the abundant eternal life that you provide. And so we'll have, um, people up on our, on my right and on my left, um, with holding out communion. And in just a moment, I'll, I'll have us all stand and we'll pray. And during the next song, people are invited to come up the center aisle, and then you can break off to either side to receive communion, and then walk back down the side aisles. So let's all stand as we, as we pray and prepare for communion. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of agape love. We thank you that you are a God who invites us to know you. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God working for our good and the good of all creation. And that it is your heart's cry to heal and to restore and to reconcile that we might be be whole, that we might um, know you and be known, that we might walk in your love, that we might reflect your love to our families and and at our workplaces and in the grocery store and, and to the stranger we meet on the street, Lord. Today we surrender to you, knowing that you you see us and you will care for us and you love us. And so, Lord, thank you for the sacrifice you made on the cross. Thank you for your willingness to die. And, Lord, we thank you for the the, the power to rise again from the dead. And Lord, we thank you for this invitation to know your eternal life, your abundant life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to close out today with um, a prayer from uh, a prayer app that I listen to often. It's called uh, Pray As You Go, and this is their ending prayer for Lent. I want to share that with you today. It says, God, you have given all to us. To you, Lord, we return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give us only your love and grace. That is enough for us. Amen. Have a wonderful week. Thank you so much for being here today.